The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, church. Uh, Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. When you are ready, please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you are reading from the Black Pew Bible, it can be found on page 815. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we are rolling back into the Gospel of Luke, and if you saw my Slack post a couple of days ago, uh, we're settling back in um, to the Gospel of Luke. If you remember, we started back in July of 2022. And we took a little break um, over the end of the year and at the beginning of the year, but we're settling back in uh, to sort of kick back up the dust of the Gospel of Luke and to get our feet dirty with Luke again. We're going to be in Luke um, for a while up, up until May. So our sermon title this morning, if you just want to hang a title over these verses, this is going to be this, Following the Savior, Following the Savior. And the main idea from our text this morning is going to be following the Savior in genuine discipleship. It's something. It's a commitment. It's a commitment to a costly summons. If you remember a key aspect of Bible reading is understanding context, and you've got to remember verse 51 isn't divorced from context. It exists obviously immediately within chapter 9. In chapter 9, if you remember, we preached the first two halves of chapter 9 at the very beginning of this year where we saw Jesus summonsing us. He was granting, calling summons, a, a command. He was inviting people to come and pursue him, to count the cost, to deny self, die to self, and to follow him. And now what we're going to see is that Luke is going to take many, many, many chapters to help us understand what does this mean What does this mean? What are the implications of this? We know Jesus told us to count the cost, and now in a sense, he's going to begin to delineate what that cost is over chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and half of 19. 
These chapters are all about discipleship. Jesus is who he says he is, and he accomplished what he came to accomplish. What does this mean for me to follow this kind of Savior? Luke is kicking this off by turning us to, as we will see, three would-be disciples Three would-be disciples, we're going to learn a lot about what following the Savior in genuine discipleship is, and we're going to see it is a commitment to a costly summons. So let's pause, let's pray. My encouragement is pray as well. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to do a work, to challenge us. Up, challenge us. These are probably not uh, unfamiliar. In other words, these are familiar words to us. And we don't want the familiarity of these words to just land on us and roll off our hearts like water off a duck's back. We want to be pierced by the word. It is a double-edged sword, according to the scriptures. And it's right to ask the Holy Spirit to wield his sword on our hearts to pierce us so that we might be changed, conformed, molded, and shaped into the image of Jesus. You have to know the Holy Spirit loves to do this. And so it's good and right to ask him to do this. Does that make sense? All right, so let's go to the Lord. Let's ask him to do this. Father, our aim is to see you glorified, and so we're asking that by the power of your Spirit, he would wield the sword of the Word right now. These interactions of Jesus in Luke's Gospel, like a surgeon's scalpel to lay us open and to expose those areas of our hearts that we just oftentimes love to let and desire to remain in the dark. But your word is not only a scalpel, your word is a floodlight. And it has the ability to light our path and make our path straight, but the word empowered by the Spirit has the ability to flood our, our hearts and expose so, Lord, that's my prayer. Would you expose? Not expose so that we would shrink into guilt or shame or anxiety, but expose so that we would see that we're never, ever moving beyond our need for Jesus. So, Lord, simply put, I'm asking that you would expose so that our exposure would lead us and convince us of our need for Jesus especially as it relates to pursuing him in costly discipleship. Christ the King, you're the resurrected one. Your name is to be praised and your name will be praised. And I'm asking that your Holy Spirit move among us now so that even in our seats as we hear the word preached, praise would be stirred in our hearts. Christ, we ask this for your name and for your glory. Amen. Amen, amen. So here we are. We're heading into uh, what, is, in essence, is the second half of Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is a little lopsided, right? 24 chapters, but the midpoint isn't like the, the midpoint of chapter 12. It actually happens here in verse 51. So if you're a Bible underliner, a highlighter, that kind of person, you would do well to uh, highlight, circle, put some kind of note next to chapter 9, verse 51, because chapter 9, verse 51 is a crucial turn in Luke's gospel. 
It's a crucial turn in Luke's gospel. And even my use of that word crucial is intentionally crucial because that word itself, the word crucial, is derived from that Latin word crus, which is a word cross. And because what you see here is this idea of Jesus, days drawing near to be taken up, his face is set to go to Jerusalem. That phrase, face set to go to Jerusalem, has everything to do with the cross. And so like a big hinge, what Luke is doing is he's turning us from the qualified Savior who is completely qualified to be the one to bring the salvation that we need. Like a hinge, Luke is swinging us now into the back half of his gospel, and it's swinging on the hinge of the cross. Jesus' face set to go to Jerusalem. The completed ministry of Jesus in Galilee is done. And now we see this determined face set, the destiny of Christ going to the cross, this journey he's going to take to Jerusalem. This is what the second half of the gospel of Luke is all about. So in the first half of this gospel, if you remember, Luke uh, showed to us the Savior's resume. He took chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 to show us, like, he's the qualified one. If anyone is going to meet the qualifications to be the Savior, I've given you three and a half, four chapters to show you how Jesus is qualified. Then Luke set out to show us uh, Jesus' manifesto. This is what I'm about. This is my mission. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to accomplish. Then he rolled into the Savior's great salvation in chapter 7 and 8, saying, this is the salvation I'm bringing. This is who is going to be saved. This is what I'm going to do. And then he rolled into chapter 9, those first 50 verses that we saw at the beginning of the year, and it was the summons. Because this is true, because this is true, because this is true, here's my call to you. This is the kind of Savior that I'm calling you to follow. In a sense, this is what Luke is saying. And it's this summons to his followers that we saw at the beginning of the year who identified Jesus correctly as the Christ of God. Do you remember that? Who are they saying that I am? Well, the prophet, Elijah. So who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The confession of Peter on his lips is, we see this, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus doesn't correct them. Because it's true. He is the Christ of God. And now what he's going to do is say, because I am the Christ of God, this means I must go to Jerusalem. His face is set. It's that language that you get from Isaiah 50, I believe it is, where his face was set like a flint, unmoving. He cannot not go to Jerusalem. He has to go. He has to suffer. He has to be rejected. He has to be killed. And he has to be raised on the third day. He is going to go there. The key question that comes then is, what does costly discipleship look like to follow this kind of Savior? Because Jesus is summonsing us to a costly discipleship, the question is, what does this costly discipleship look like? In a very real sense, this big, beefy middle section of Luke is the answer to the question, right? What we could have done is you could have walked through the door of chapter 9, verse 51, into chapter 19, verse 28, 
if Luke would have set out to say, hey, Theophilus, I'm writing to you this account of Jesus. This is how Jesus is qualified, and this is what he's going to accomplish. He could have taken us all the way up to chapter 9, verse 51, where he tells us the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. He has set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then if you fast forward into chapter 19, verse 28, what you read is Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. Luke could have just done that. He's setting his face, and boom, there he is. He came to accomplish something, and here's how he accomplished it. But notice he doesn't do that. As I listed off for you, he gives us chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. There's a big, beefy, meaty section in the middle of these two things. The question is, why? It raises the question of, why does Luke do this? The answer comes down to this. It's because Luke wants Theophilus... Subsequently, Luke wants you and me to be certain about what it means to follow Jesus. This big middle section of Luke's gospel is concerned with discipleship. Because of the great salvation that Jesus has come to accomplish according to the scriptures and the great salvation that was accomplished by Jesus at the cross according to the scriptures, Theophilus, this means something. It means something for your everyday followership of Jesus. And what it means is this. Jerusalem discipleship is a costly summons. Jerusalem discipleship. If you're going to follow a Savior whose face is set to Jerusalem, and his face being set to Jerusalem means Jesus is going to deny. Jesus is going to die because Jesus is following the Father, he is modeling for us what it looks like to pursue that kind of Savior. And so that's why I'm calling this genuine everyday discipleship Jerusalem-style discipleship. It's a costly summons. That's why I have Jesus on this Jerusalem journey, says Luke. His journey is your journey. His self-denying, cross-carrying, father-following journey is the same invitation set before you because remember what we saw at the beginning of the year. If anyone would come after me, what must he do according to Jesus? He must deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. If you look into verse 51, we are told that the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. That language, to be taken up, is like Luke code for this idea. It's the direct reference of Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his ascension. This is all packed into this idea of Jesus being taken up. Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem because of the mustness of the cross, If you remember in line with the conversation that Jesus had with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus said he must accomplish this new exodus. Where at? At Jerusalem. He's got to go there. This is how salvation is going to be accomplished. Now, according to verses 52 and 53, not everybody is cool with this. Not everybody is willing to receive this. A lot of people are going to reject Jesus because of this. So we see in verses 52 and 53, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him into Samaria. These messengers went and entered a village of the Samaritans. They were there to make preparations for him, that is Jesus. But notice 
how the people responded. The people did not receive him, did not receive Jesus. Why? Why did they not receive him? The answer is right there at the end of verse 53. Do you see the answer? They did not receive him because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. Reading our Bibles, we learn that there was serious beef between Jews and Samaritans. Thus, the Samaritans' refusal to receive Jesus as the Christ of God is not surprising. It's just this idea of a Savior who's coming, a Savior who's going to die. Even the 12 disciples, like there's just, people aren't quite getting. They're willing to say this is who he is, but people are overly wrestling with the idea of what he came to do because the implication of a Savior who came to die to save sinners means that I am a sinner that needs to be saved. And there's a whole other host of implications that go with this idea of going to Jerusalem. Luke is telling us they understood fully why he's going to Jerusalem. His face is set. They understand the setness of his face. And they say, we don't want anything to do with that. They reject Jesus. They refuse to receive him. Now, this refusal to receive Jesus, it stokes James and John to defend the honor of Jesus. It prompts them to ask, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Very interesting immediate response. Can give a little bit of leeway, though. I mean, they love Jesus. They want to see him honored. Jesus is being dishonored, not on our watch. Thank you very much. Do you need a little like Elijah-like fire from heaven? Thank you very much. I mean, we'll be glad to call it down on your behalf. But Jesus turns and rebukes them. Rebukes them. While the Samaritans are failing to do something, James, John, the disciples are also failing to do something. The Samaritans are failing to receive the king who is going to Jerusalem. Jesus is the Christ of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's going to humble himself by being obedient to the point of death on the cross. And the Father is going to awesomely exalt him above all. He's going to make his name to be the name that is going to receive worship and glory. It's at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess Christ Jesus is Lord. This is going to happen. The Samaritans fail to see this and thus they fail to receive Jesus. But notice this, the disciples are failing to understand the importance of the king going to Jerusalem. Remember, they understand he's the king, they understand he's the Christ, they understand he's the Messiah, but their assumption is we're going to Jerusalem and he's about ready to overthrow the earthly powers and we're going to see Jesus sitting on an earthly throne. If these cats aren't going to get in line, we just need to smoke them out. We need to go nuclear on them. We need to get rid of them because if they ain't going to bow the knee now, they ain't going to bow the knee later. Jerusalem mission, they're seeing it with earthly eyes. But what Jesus is wanting them to see is that Jerusalem is not a judgment mission. Jerusalem is no judgment mission. Jerusalem is not an overthrow Herod power grab mission. Jerusalem is not a snuff out any who reject the king kind of mission. Jerusalem is a salvation mission. Jerusalem is a going to the cross to make possible the forgiveness of sins kind of mission. And because this is true, says Luke to Theophilus and says Luke to you and says Luke to me, Jerusalem discipleship must be seen in light of the cross. To try to see discipleship in any other shape besides the cross 
is to not see discipleship the way Jesus wants to say it. In other words, Jerusalem discipleship is cruciform. It's in the form of the cruce, in the form of the cross. Because that's where Jesus is going. That's what he must do, and that's what he's calling people who follow him to come and do as well. Jerusalem discipleship is cruciform. It must be seen in the shape and the light of the cross. To follow the Savior who set his face to Jerusalem means genuine discipleship of the Savior is a commitment to a costly summons that must be taken into account. Why do I say it like that? That it must be taken into account. It's because of the three would-be disciples that come and use that follow language in verses 57 through 62 that Luke takes us to next. It's no mistake that Luke puts this whole fire from heaven, Jerusalem mission, it's not a judgment mission, it's a salvation mission, and smushes it right up against three would-be disciples who come and say, well, I will follow you, well, I will follow you, and one of them even hears a command from Jesus, you follow me, but all of them sort of waffle, and all of them sort of or, uh, you don't really know what happens. Jesus challenges them. He corrects them. Like, listen, I hear what you're saying. I hear your, your uh, proclamation of followership of me, but you need to know something. Jerusalem discipleship is serious. Jerusalem discipleship has a cost to it. And so this is why Luke turns our attention to these three would-be disciples in Verses 57 through 62, we're going to give them names. We're going to bump into a Mr. Enthusiasm. We're going to bump into a Mr. Excuse Maker. And we're going to bump into Mr. Yeah, but they're in the last. And what you see is that each of these would-be disciples, Mr. Enthusiasm, Mr. Excuse Maker, and Mr. Yeah, but, they're either going to teach us something about the costly nature of following Jesus costly nature of self-denying, self-dying followership. And the first truth is this, following the Savior is a commitment to embrace self-denial. Following the Savior is a commitment to embrace self-denial. This is the first would-be disciple, Mr. Enthusiasm. If you wanted to put that main point in another way, you could put it like this, following Jesus, we must get comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the call to follow Jesus, starting in verse 30. Or 57, Mr. Enthusiasm. Here he is. He breaks onto the scenes. We get two verses about, about his enthusiasm. He comes on the scene with a confession. He sees Jesus as they are going along the road. And he comes up and says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever I go. Because I'm lame like this. Like my mind keeps drifting. Like what is it like the night? I will follow him. I will follow wherever he may go. Like anyone watch Sister Act? Whoopi Goldberg back in the day? Am I just really old? I'm getting like a lot. I'm really old. And like I'm finding out my movie references are really antiquated. Remember that? Brady, like, like sort of oldies kind of like, right? 1960s kind of thing, right? I, I don't know if this cat was singing it like this. Probably not. Like I'm lame and I'm thinking like he's singing this. He's like, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he may go. It's like, okay, he's enthusiastic. He's in. He's down with Christ. He's, he's, he's like, I see him. We don't know why he's there. Maybe he's been on the fringes. Maybe he's making a decision. I'm going to press in. I don't want to be on the fringes. But he sees Jesus. He's walking along the road beside him. And he looks at Christ and says, listen, I'm going to follow you wherever, wherever you go. But notice his confession is not met with an enthusiastic Jesus like, yeah, man, sweet. Another one on the board. Guys, we're now 13. We're not 12. He doesn't say that. He actually gives a correction to this guy. 
Matthew tells us it was a scribe who was asking this and saying these things. And Jesus says to the scribe, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. An odd reply to a confession. I'm going to follow you wherever you go, but Jesus is doing something here. What you're going to find out is this. Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. Because two of these replies seem overly harsh, overly insensitive, overly rude when you hear what Jesus has to say. But Jesus knows what's in the heart of men. And just like the rich young ruler, Jesus tailors his responses to the specific person. So while this might be true, and this is what this man, this scribe needs to hear, it may not be what someone else needs to hear, but it is what this scribe needs to hear. You need to understand this. Foxes, holes, birds, nests, I've got nothing. So all this to say is there's no reason to doubt this man's enthusiasm. I don't think we need to incorrectly assume he's faking it right now. I believe him to be overly enthusiastic. He's being uh, genuinely enthusiastic in this sense. But oftentimes, listen, oftentimes the test of genuine enthusiasm over whatever is whether a person is willing to count the cost that their enthusiasm requires. Does this make sense? So if I say to you, tomorrow I've made a decision, I'm going to go and run a marathon, 26.2 miles, I'm going to do it, I'm all about it, you know, I've got marathon clothes, I'm going to Shields, I'm going to buy a bunch of gear, I'm going to do it, I'm going to run it, I'm going to succeed, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, ah, enthusiastic. And then someone says, well, you, you know what this means, right? This means money, that's going to go to new gear, this means time that you have little of, this means you might have to stop eating all the sugary food that you really enjoy eating, this means you might have to start waking up earlier than you want. And what are they doing there? They're saying you need to count the cost, you need to count the cost, you need to count the cost. Then you will know if my genuine enthusiasm is truly genuine in that moment when all of a sudden I start to go, yeah, that's a little bit more than I was hoping to pay. The paycheck for my enthusiasm is not something I'm willing to pony up. Or you do find out someone's enthusiasm is genuine in that moment. Or like, yes, count of the cost, count of the cost, count of the cost. I'm still in very enthusiastic. This is what Jesus is doing right now for this would-be disciple. He's calling him to count the cost. Lest this man promise too much too soon, Jesus goes back and he re-underlines his teaching from back in chapter 9, verse 23, that if anyone would come after me, you need to know this. This person will be known by denying self taking up cross daily and following me. You have to know this, says Jesus, that the creatures of earth and air, they have it way better than I do. They have homes of refuge. They have nests of comfort. I do not. I don't. In other words, you must know that your confession, Mr. Enthusiasm, of I will follow you wherever you go, it comes with a price. Following will mean this, Mr. Enthusiasm. Following me will mean getting comfortable with being uncomfortable in a number of ways. Not only comfortable with relinquishing the comforts of earthly security. Some of us have been there before. Recognizing that counting the cost of following Christ means I relinquish the comforts of earthly security to pursue Jesus. But I think it also means uh, more to this. It also means getting comfortable with the rejection that comes with associating with the work of Christ on the cross. Just like Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, who goes into Samaria and is received, 
who's rejected. You need to get comfortable with these kinds of things. You're going to have to receive in this life, if any of us have been pursuing Jesus for any amount of time, my hunch is if you had the, I was welcomed with wide open arms because of Jesus' bucket, and I was uh, rejected with very angry words or angry actions because of Jesus, more, we would have more units of measurement in the I was rejected than the I was welcomed bucket. It's not that you've never been welcomed and never been received, never been warmly embraced because of Christ, but most of us know this. We will receive more rejection because of Christ, like Christ. And Jesus says, you just got to know this. This is what following me is about. If this is how I am going to be encountered, on the road to Jerusalem, your Jerusalem discipleship is just, it's going to come the same way to you. You see, here's a truth. A cost of following Jesus is deprioritizing our relentless pursuit of comfort and learning to prioritize Christ's pursuits. Does this make sense? A key aspect of following Christ is learning to deprioritize our relentless pursuit of comfort. We are pursuers of comfort. What Jesus is saying is we need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Following me is a path of self-denial. It's deprioritizing my pursuit of comfort and prioritizing what Christ pursues, what he loves and so forth. So this would-be disciple, it's an extreme challenge to us, as all three are going to prove to be. Like Mr. Enthusiasm, we can readily confess, all of us can readily confess our willingness to follow Jesus wherever he may go. But if we're not careful, we can slip into the place where our confession is true, and we mean it to be true, but then we put a little asterisk next to our confession because it's true only so far as our confession does not challenge our earthly comforts. And that's the little, little thing we hang on to in our back of it. Jesus, I will follow you. And we're just sort of computing in the back of my mind. Well, like, you know, only so far as following Jesus doesn't take me out of my comfort zone or following Jesus doesn't posture me into a place to be uh, rejected and not received and these sorts of things. But Jesus says this, there can be no asterisk kind of discipleship. Costly discipleship, Jerusalem discipleship is pursuing Christ with no asterisks, so to speak. Jesus' Jerusalem journey tells us that Jerusalem discipleship is not one of earthly comfort. Thus, following Jesus means we embrace this reality. Second, what do we learn? We look at the second would-be disciple. We can learn this. Point two, that following the Savior is a commitment to obedience. Following the Savior is a commitment to obedience. So here we bump into Mr. Excuse Maker. But unlike the first would-be disciple, this person is actually approached by Jesus. So Mr. Enthusiasm came up to Jesus. I'm going to follow you. This guy is just sort of like walking along and Jesus says, you follow me. A little bit different. But notice how he, Mr. Excuse Maker, responds Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But notice that this too results in a correction from Jesus let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Now, first glance, as I sort of said earlier, that this seems rude, it seems insensitive on the part of Jesus. After all, there's nothing innately, inherently wrong with a man wanting to care for his parents, and especially, in this case, to go bury his father. Like, there's nothing wrong with this. Honoring your father, honoring your mother is right, and Jesus solidifies this as a truth. You can go read Mark chapter 7 for homework later to see what Jesus has to say about these kinds of things. So when Jesus says what he says to Mr. Excuse Maker, what we know for sure is this. Jesus is not suggesting somehow that it's cool and right to dishonor your parents. He's not doing that. But what Jesus is doing is this. He's saying that denying dying fellowship does change our ultimate allegiance. It changes our ultimate allegiance. It does reorient our ultimate priority. Where Mr. Enthusiasm needs to deny self, Mr. Excuse Maker is learning the need to die to self. To have that priority reorganization. He's learning that following the Savior is a commitment to obedience and following the Savior is a commitment to, to fight this tendency that we all have, this tendency to blunt the edge of gospel urgency with excuse-making. Do you notice how he talks here? Jesus, follow me. Lord, let me first go and do this. He says, no, let the, the idea is the spiritually dead to bury their physical dead. Here's what you need to be about. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There's a gospel urgency here. And if you are not careful, if I am not careful, what we can do is we can blunt the edge of gospel urgency with excuse making. Again, there are, I repeat myself, there are few greater responsibilities for any son or for any daughter than the appropriate oversight of their parents' death and their burial. Yet, even in these circumstances, and circumstances like these, there is an overarching responsibility, says Jesus, for the disciple that must have first place in their heart, and that's the priority of gospel urgency, to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. In other words, if you want to take this and maybe say it in a little bit different way, we could say it like this. For followers of Jesus, gospel urgency is to permeate all areas of life. There's to be no silos. Any of us here have trouble with siloing our Jesus life from other areas of life? Okay, apparently just me. All right, this is, okay, one, Brendan, my man. We're on the same team, brother. We've got troubles, man, and Jesus is good. Um, yeah, it's easy right? Me and Jesus were tight for two hours on a Sunday, but for the next six days and 22 hours, it's, it's like sort of like all my non-Jesus kind of life, right? It's easy to get into that kind of mentality, right? I think Jesus is challenging us. Jerusalem discipleship is, is different. There's to be no, no silos. In other words, everyday discipleship is everywhere followership, Discipleship is followership, and if my discipleship is an everyday reality, that means my follower of, uh, of my followership of Jesus goes with me everywhere. So there's no silos in in my life. Thus, the ultimate pri- gospel priority, and I put that word ultimate there, the tippy top ultimate gospel priority of my life, if I am a follower of Jesus, is the. 
priority that we see in verse 60, this idea of go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And what we can then see is this. If my everyday discipleship is everywhere followership, that means everywhere I go, my followership of Jesus goes with me. So it's sort of like a shadow. I can't leave my shadow. Everywhere I go, my shadow goes with me. Everywhere I go, my followership of Jesus goes with me. What this means then is that within every commitment... Every commitment that you and I may have, there is a higher, there is a prior concern to make Christ and his salvation known. So what Jesus is doing, the challenge that he's laying before Mr. Excuse Maker and before you and before me is to challenge us to retweak how we so often think. What we so often think is this. I'm first a son, I'm first a daughter, I'm first a parent, I'm first a neighbor, a teacher, a laborer, a nurse, a student, a supervisor. And it's this identity I lean into for six days and 22 hours, but when I show up for church on Sunday for two hours, what I do is then I then switch into gospel mode. But what Jesus is doing is saying, no, 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 what I want you to see is that you're not first a son. You're not first a daughter, a parent, neighbor, teacher, laborer, nurse, student, supervisor. What you are first is a Christian. And then as a Christian, as you go into these spheres, you go into these spheres with this calling to make Jesus known. So when you are parenting, you're parenting as a follower of Jesus in this moment. When you go into your local work, Blue collar or white collar, you're going in first and foremost as a redeemed man, a redeemed woman, and my followership has followed me in because my followership is like my shadow. My followership cannot be checked. At 12 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon, my followership has followed me here. So what does it look like for me to lean into this idea? That's what Jesus is laying before Mr. Excuse Maker. Then last, number three, following the Savior is a commitment to wholehearted allegiance. This is point number three. Following the Savior is a commitment to wholehearted allegiance. Verse 61, we bump into Mr. Yabut. He's similar to his friend, Mr. Enthusiasm. Notice that like Mr. Enthusiasm, he leads with a confession, I will follow you, Lord. But like Mr. Excuse Maker, he is also a but firster. You see his response there? I will follow you, Lord, but First, let me go say farewell to those, to my folks at home. And like the two before him, his confession prompts another correction from Jesus. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Like the previous would-be disciples, Mr. Yeah, but he needs to learn something. What he needs to learn is that to follow is to do just that, to follow. It's not following, constantly be going like, yeah, or, well, yeah, Jesus, but, you know, yeah, 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 G- uh, well, I, I, I don't know. He's like, no, no, no. Follow. Say, I'm going to follow you, Lord. Lord is the implication that, like, I'm going to do what he says, but then to be like, yeah, but actually, it sort of undermines, it sweeps the legs out from underneath that Lord idea. When you yeah about the Lord, then we have to ask the question, who's really the Lord in the relationship? I'm telling, this is, I don't know, it's, it was challenging for me this past week. Maybe it's just, just for me. Because I think the hang-up for Mr. Yeah, but is that it's a divided heart. Anyone ever struggle with a divided heart with the things of Christ? 
Yeah, Jesus. I don't know. Like that thing. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. That is right. Yeah, but I don't know that thing over there. Mr. Yeah, but he's, he's a biblical character, if you want to put it in that language. It's divided heart. Jesus, yes, I will follow you, but first, let me go do this. Now, like Mr. Excuse Maker, there's nothing inherently wrong with what he says. It's not wrong to want to say, can I go say goodbye to my folks first? Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with this. But as I said earlier, Jesus knows what's in the heart of men, and Jesus knows this man's heart and his desire, Mr. Yabut's heart desire to say farewell to his family. It wasn't so much to go and sever his connections so he could be wholeheartedly in pursuit of Christ. It was to go back and delay his commitment to Christ. Yeah, I'll get on to it. Uh, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first, but first. He's going to butt first himself into a missed opportunity. Maybe some of us have been there before. We've butt firsted Jesus into missed opportunities. In this way, Mr. Yeah, but was like a farmer who put his hand to the plow and he kept looking back. Maybe you're like, dude, I have no, no clue what that means. But most of us can say, yeah, we've been up behind the old push mower. And if we're looking back, right, the next thing you know, you look up and your yard is... It's all, it's all jacked up, man. It's all over the place. Same, same kind of concept. In a sense, Mr. Yabut, he's made a commitment, but then in a sense, Mr. Yabut has not made a commitment. Thus, the call to wholehearted allegiance, the call to stay the course with single-minded devotion. Listen, this is the summarizing idea. To follow Jesus is to follow like Jesus. To follow Jesus is to follow like Jesus. How did Jesus follow? How did Jesus model self-denying, self-dying followership? He said this, I'm going to Jerusalem and I ain't going back. My face is set and I'm moving forward toward the Father because what is going to happen there must be done and it's going to bring salvation and people are going to be saved. So with face set to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to deny self. Father, can this cup of wrath pass from me? Not my will, but your will be done. That's self-denial. He's going to die to self, literally get on the cross and be crucified. Why? Following the Father's plan A, plan of redemption, the only plan that was ever given for sinners to be saved. And Jesus says, if this is my Jerusalem discipleship, so to speak, this is what I'm calling you to. To follow Jesus is to follow like Jesus, who looked to Jerusalem with face set, refusing to look back. Friends, Jerusalem discipleship is costly. Jerusalem discipleship is serious business, but guess what? Praise be to God that Jerusalem discipleship is not impossible business you might be like yeah right i just saw three people who i, I don't know did they, did they flake out did they not i have no idea where they're at and so you might be like do we even have like maybe a glimmer of a hope that jerusalem discipleship is actually possible and the answer is yes back in luke chapter 5 do you remember how levi who we know as matthew the tax collector do you remember what happened to him what happened to him? Jesus came, and just like Mr. Excuse Maker, Jesus looked at him and said, Matthew, follow me. And what does Luke record for us? Matthew left everything, got up, and followed. Perfectly, we got three years of evidence in every single gospel that it wasn't perfect. But it's not impossible. And that's the invitation for you, 
to me, neighbors, school, anyone that we bump into. Count the cost. Count the cost. But see that the cost is worth it. Is the cost not minuscule compared to the inexhaustible riches that we get to inherit in Christ? The cost of self-denial, self-dying followership, that, that is minuscule. Jesus wants us to count it. But he also is inviting us to see over the next many chapters and weeks to come that that cost is worth it. Amen? Let's pray for these things. Lord, increase in us this kind of commitment. Lord, increase in us this kind of commitment to costly discipleship. Lord, would you move and work in uh, mysterious ways in, in, our, in our lives? And would you work in maybe some not-so-mysterious but blatantly obvious kind of ways as you move in and through us. Lord, help us to count the cost but see the cost is worth it of pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his gracious name that we pray these things. Amen.